Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19? Now, last week in our study in Matthew, we came to chapter 19 and a section where Jesus is teaching on marriage and divorce. But I want to just take a moment to kind of frame this message by just looking at marriage itself for a second. You know, ever since the 1960s, traditional marriage has been under attack in our country by those who didn't want to be shackled to the mores of previous generations, but instead wanted to experience sexual freedom on almost every level imaginable. The battle against traditional marriage recently shifted into high gear when the Supreme Court struck down DOMA as unconstitutional. DOMA stands for Defense of Marriage Act. DOMA was passed in 1996 by a bipartisan majority of Congress and then signed into law by then-President Bill Clinton. It specified that where federal law is concerned, I'm just quoting from the, the law, the word marriage means only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife. And the word spouse refers only to a person of the opposite sex who is a husband or a wife. But back in June, the Supreme Court ruled that definition an unconstitutional violation of equal rights. And of course, that has opened the way for the legalization of gay marriage and then the legalization of polygamy and then ultimately, guys, a definition of marriage where any grouping of individuals is going to have to be recognized and legitimized by the state or else there's going to be discrimination, litigation, sure, to follow. But even when we talk about heterosexual marriages, marriage has come under heavy attack by the enemy. See, we're in a battle with the devil for the survival of our marriages. Satan wants to destroy them. God wants to grow them and make them flourish because he is glorified through them. And I want you to understand something. This war is with the devil and his demons, not really with each other. We know in Ephesians 6, Paul says we don't fight against flesh and blood. We don't fight against people, but against principalities and powers, the hosts of wickedness in the spirit realm. So we're at war, but it's a war not with each other. It's a war with the devil and his demons. However, in any war, there's a certain percentage of casualties that come as a result of what's called friendly fire. Every soldier knows that sometimes in the heat of battle, friends can be mistaken for enemies. And when that happens, the results can be devastating. Unfortunately, when we talk about spiritual warfare, the same is true. There are many casualties in the body of Christ, and particularly in marriage, as a result of friendly fire. And by that I mean people who are supposed to be on the same side, fighting against the real enemy, often find themselves fighting each other, taking shots at one another, wounding and hurting and even destroying those who are supposed to be allies and not enemies. And how true this often is in marriage. You realize that when Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 reminded us that we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the hosts of wickedness in the heavenly realm, he did so directly on the heels of his teaching on marriage. He taught on marriage at the end of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, pretty much he talks about spiritual warfare. It tells me that marriage can expect to be the target of much of the spiritual warfare that we encounter as Christians. In fact, you don't have to go very far in the Bible to understand this principle. Because at the end of Genesis chapter 2, God marries Adam and Eve. 
At the beginning of chapter 3, Satan attacks the first marriage on the face of the earth. And why did Satan do it? Well, for several reasons, which we've covered in other studies, but primarily to get back at God. See, God designed marriage to be something beautiful, fruitful, something that, uh, that uh, honors him and glorifies him. Satan hates anything that honors and glorifies God, and so he can't hurt God directly, so he'll hurt those made in the image of God. He'll bring down something God has created, marriage, because he doesn't want God honored. He doesn't want God glorified. So this is at the heart of the conflict we see in marriage today. Now, we give in to it. I'm not saying we're innocent pawns in the devil's hands. He pushes the buttons and we respond and we get at each other and we kind of, you know, come against each other in marriage especially. But if you only realize that at the core of the problems you're facing in your marriage is a spiritual struggle, you would handle those struggles differently than you maybe are handling them right now. So marriage is under attack today, but it was also under attack in Jesus' day, which we studied last week. Well, let me review quickly. At one point, the Pharisees came to Jesus with a question that was designed to trip him up. It says in verse 3, they came to him testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now again, as we pointed out last week, this question was designed to trip Jesus up and turn public opinion against him. How? Because this was a hot button issue back then. People wanted the, the freedom to divorce quickly for just about any reason. And it really gets into the attitude of the men back there because uh, women couldn't divorce their husbands, men could divorce their wives. And so they picked up on this and they used it to their advantage. And there was a lot of men back then that were so consumed with their own selfish desires. And they wanted the freedom to move from one partner to the next while still maintaining the image of being righteous people. I mean, after all, they wanted their fling. They just didn't want to commit adultery. Because adultery, that's a sin, right? But if I divorce my wife and marry this new gal, I can have my little fling until I tire of this relationship. But I want the freedom then to be able to divorce quickly to move to the next fling. And that's what we see going on back then. And so that's what the Pharisees hoped to use against Jesus. They wanted him to take a side to polarize people against him. What did Jesus do? He didn't get drawn into the controversy of the day. He went right back to the Word of God. Jesus did not play the game. You know, unbelievers will often come to us as Christians and try to get us sucked into some kind of controversy. Don't play that game. Go right to the Word of God. That's what Jesus did. What do you think about this, Jesus? I'll tell you what I think about it. I think about it what God said. Verse 4, Have you not read? that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate, or the word is divorce. And again, we saw this last week, how that marriage is a creation of God, not the invention of man. And as such, only God has the right to define it and to regulate it. And he says it's between one man and one woman for life. That was his original intention from the beginning. And again, that's why we must always go back to what God has said with regard to marriage and not formulate our understanding of it based on the changing mores of society. 
Now, here's the thing. Unbelievers don't like it when you're definitive. It doesn't leave room for ambiguity or tolerance. They hate it when we Christians are very definite in what we believe and how we answer their questions. Do you think you're going to heaven, you Christian? I don't think I know I'm going to heaven. <gasps> I knew it! You Christians are so arrogant! Well, look, calm down. I know I'm going to heaven not because I'm good enough to go. To, I'm not good enough to get to heaven at all. I know I'm going to heaven because Jesus promised me I would get to heaven by believing in him. Good people don't go to heaven. There are none. Forgiven people, they go to heaven. But, ooh, unbelievers hate it when we're definitive. So they kind of tried to trip Jesus up with a little hot button issue of the day. And Jesus said, here, here's what, here's what I believe. Quote some scripture. How are they going to argue with that? They're Pharisees, supposed to be men of God. Quote some scripture. But they didn't like that. He was too firm in his, his uh, response to them. It kind of drew their ire. And they shot back in verse 7, Well, then why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And Jesus responded in verse 8, Look, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But listen, from the beginning, the beginning of creation, the beginning time when God first made marriage, it was not so. And first of all, by the way, the Pharisees were wrong when they said that Moses commanded a man to divorce his wife if he found some uncleanness in her. We took you back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. That's where that came from, some uncleanness. And Jesus corrected them by saying, look, it was not a command, but a concession, a concession due to the hardness of men's hearts towards their wives. Look, in that culture, he could cut her loose. She had no legal recourse. He held all the cards. He held, held all the power. And if for any reason one day he came home and said, I'm tired of you, you're out. He could just write a simple certificate of divorce, put it in her hand, send her out the door. She had nothing to fall back on. She was completely destitute if family didn't take her in. That's a pretty hard-hearted thing to do to a woman who has been your wife. Look, I love Jesus because he cuts right to the chase. He didn't play the game. He didn't get sucked into the controversy. In fact, he put the controversy to rest. He said, verse 9, and here's what we really pick it up this morning. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, listen, and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. You know, I realize that unbelievers... And even many Christians, or I should say many churchgoers who call themselves Christians, to these folks, this seems, listen, about as ludicrous, archaic, and out of touch with reality as you could possibly get. And when unbelievers hear us Christians who have a high view of Scripture, what does that mean? What God says we believe. We're not trying to dance around it, explain it away, or whatever. If God said it, if it's in His Word, we believe it. And for us who have a high view of Scripture, when the world hears that in a quote of verse like this, because to them, it sounds like you are totally out to lunch to believe this. You believe this? Do you actually believe this, what Jesus is saying here? Yeah, I happen to believe that. Oh, you're a nut job. You're a right-wing lunatic. Well, I might be. I might be a nut, but I'm, at least I'm screwed under the right bolt. 
look, I tell them, if you have a problem with this, you got a problem with this? You got a problem with this? Look, you better take it up with Jesus, all right? Because this is his command. Notice the beginning of verse 9. And I say to you, this is God talking. This is God talking. People have a problem with what God says today. So here's what they do. They either try to explain it away, ignore it, dismiss it, or kill God. That really is at the heart of the rise of atheism today, by the way. People want to sin without guilt. So if you want to sin without guilt, give it to God. Then no God, no guilt. Let's not look at it any way other than that. That's what it is, pure and simple. But look, here's what Jesus said. Here's what God said. He said, look, if you marry a gal and divorce her for unbiblical reasons, and you marry somebody else, and somebody else marries her, adultery is committed all over the place. What is the Lord saying here? He is saying very simply that in the eyes of God, unbiblical divorce doesn't end the marriage covenant, which means to remarry is to commit adultery. One author put it this way, he said, and I quote, A man or a woman who has no right to divorce has no right to remarry. To do so initiates a whole chain of adultery because remarriage after illegitimate divorce results in illegitimate and adulterous relationships for all parties involved, end quote. Jesus is clearly saying here, there's no cloudiness or ambiguity, he is clearly saying that the only grounds for divorce in the eyes of God is for sexual immorality. The only grounds for divorce in God's eyes is sexual immorality. The Greek word there for sexual immorality is really one word in the Greek, porneia. We get the word pornography from that Greek word. And porneia means any kind of sexual sin or perversion, which is defined by God as adultery, homosexuality, incest, pedophilia, bestiality, and so on. Now, Jesus' words in verse 9 absolutely floored his disciples. Absolutely floored his disciples. Why? Because they were dealing with a cultural mindset that they had all grown up with. A cultural mindset that Pastor John MacArthur explained this way, and I quote, he said, because they had grown up in a culture where divorce was rampant, largely due to that rabbinical teaching which not only permitted but even required divorce for virtually any reason, the twelve were more than a little perplexed by what Jesus taught. Many Jews considered divorce, listen, a virtue, almost on a par with marriage itself. Among the Talmudic writings of the rabbis is the statement, a bad wife is like leprosy to her husband. What is the remedy? Let him divorce her and cure himself of leprosy. Another rabbi wrote, if a man has a bad wife, it is his religious duty to divorce her, end quote. Of course, everything would revolve around that concept of bad, right? What constitutes a bad wife? Well, I told you some of the things that they said, they came up with. If she lets her hair down in public, that's bad, that's grounds for divorce. If she puts too much salt uh, in his soup, cut her loose, bad wife. If she talks back to her mother-in-law, she's bad. It even got so crazy, as we said last week, some of the rabbis even began to define uncleanness. If you find some uncleanness in her, Moses said, give her a divorce papers and send her on her way. They even began to define uncleanness in the most liberal terms possible. They, they went on to say, if a man finds another woman who is prettier than his wife, then he can divorce his wife and marry the, pretty, marry the prettier gal. So you can see, as the disciples grew up in this culture with this mindset, 
why Jesus' words in, in verse 9 so impacted them. In fact, it so impacted them, they went to the other extreme, as people often do. And they said to him in verse 10, If such is the case of, a, of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Here's what the disciples were really saying to the Lord. Well, Lord, since staying married to one woman is so difficult because, you know, we men are always looking for a better deal, then to avoid, to avoid sinning through unlawful divorce and remarriage, maybe it's just better not to marry at all and to remain single. Now listen, that would solve the problem of sinning in the state of marriage. It would not save them from sinning in the state of singleness. See, the main cause of sinning in the state of singleness is lust and illicit sexual contact. Look, God has designed our physical bodies to procreate. That's what he told Adam and Eve when he first made them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. To accomplish that objective, God designed our physical bodies with certain hormones that provide us with the drive to have physical relations with a member of the opposite sex. However, in doing this, God gave some very explicit instructions as to how those sexual desires were to be satisfied. He mandated that sexual relations are only legitimate and acceptable within the context of marriage, which he defines as being between one man and one woman for life. God forbids sexual contact in any other form as being perverted and destructive. But again, I want you to understand the sex drive is one of the strongest drives that he has placed into our physical bodies. It takes a backseat to the air drive. Ever hold your breath for a while? And you feel how much your body is demanding that you breathe. That is probably the, the strongest drive God has created our physical bodies with. Second is the water drive. Now, with some guys, sex comes third. Others, food. But some guys would rather have sex than eat. But And that's just up to the individual man. Uh, but the sex drive is up there, isn't it? It's up there. And look, God placed it into us because he wanted to maintain the um, continuation of our species. The sex drive is one of the strongest drives that God has created the human body with and can only be turned off, quote-unquote, if you will, through a gift of singleness and celibacy given by the Holy Spirit. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. I want to show you what Paul said with regard to this. In 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 6, we read, Paul said, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. In other words, I'm conceding that marriage is acceptable, but I'm not commanding you to get married. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. Say, Paul, once he got saved, remained single and celibate he said but each one has his own what gift from god one in this manner another in that but i say to the unmarried and to the widows it is good for them if they remain even as i am single but if they cannot exercise self-control let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion or with lust and the idea is paul is saying look I wish you could all be single like me. Of course, that wouldn't work out so well for the, for the continuation of our species, okay? I mean, I'm sure Paul wasn't really speaking literally, but he was saying, you know, I wish you could all be like me. Stay single. 
and of course celibate. Because then you can all serve God to your fullest. You know, you, you, you wouldn't have to worry about your spouse. Like if you get married, that's great. But you, you guys, you have a wife now. You just can't run off to Africa and be a missionary if you feel God wants you to. You've got to take into consideration what's best for your wife. Now, if you're single, of course, you have the freedom to just go around and do whatever you feel God wants you to do. All you got to worry about is yourself. But Paul says, I realize that this singleness thing is a gift from the Holy Spirit. I understand that. Paul's saying not everybody has this gift. If you're burning with lust or passion for a, a person of the opposite sex, you probably don't have the gift. Now, I've met people that really do have the gift of singleness. They're completely content. They, they, they have no desire for a spouse. God has kind of turned off that, that strong sexual desire. And they're just loving the Lord. They're just serving the Lord. And God has done that in their lives because he has given them this gift. Now, if you're single and you're thinking to yourself, I don't think I have that gift. I want to be married, all right? I want to have a family. Then God will give you the grace to hang on until he brings the right spouse into your life. But Paul is saying, in general, this sex drive is so strong that, that you'll burn with passion if you don't marry unless God gives you a gift of singleness and celibacy. That's what Jesus was basically alluding to when he said in verse 11, when the disciples came to him and said, well, you know, Lord, if divorcing for unbiblical reasons and marrying somebody else causes us to sin and so on, then you know what? Maybe it's best just to stay single. And Jesus said in verse 11, well, but everyone, not everyone can accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, look, the only way you're going to remain single and content in your singleness is if, that, is if God gives you a gift of singleness. The Lord went on to say in verse 12, he says, For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who was able to accept it, let him accept it. He mentions three classifications of people. He talks about eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. What does that mean? Well, these are individuals, these are men, they were born with some congenital deformity that makes sexual relations with a woman impossible. So sometimes the genetic, genetics get messed up, he's saying, and, and men are born without the ability to have sex with a woman. They're eunuchs from birth. He also mentions men who are made eunuchs by men. What is that? Well, that primarily is a reference to the male harem guards of the day who were castrated before they were put over the harem to keep them from the women of the harem, the king's wives. Obviously, a castrated man does not have the same or normal desires for a woman. That's why they did it. What about this third one, men who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake? Well, unlike the first two, this is not a physical thing. The mutilation of the flesh in order to please God, which some, even Christian sects, sects, okay, S-E-C-T-S, um, throughout history, some Christian sects have mutilated themselves in a misguided or even a perverted way of trying to please God. Guys, that is a purely pagan thing. God never calls for self-mutilation as a form of worship or any other thing that would please him. He's not pleased by that. This third group, Jesus is speaking here 
this third category of voluntary celibacy of those to whom the gift has been granted by God, verse 11. In that case, celibacy can indeed be for the sake of the kingdom of God and be pleasing to him, as we've already seen was the case with Paul, who voluntarily remained single and celibate, allowing himself to serve the Lord with greater freedom and go around the known world building the kingdom. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians 7, I wish you guys could all be single. I wish you were all single because I wish you all had the freedom to go wherever God led, to do whatever God wanted you to do. Now, if you're married, it's okay. But you have to be concerned with your, with your wife, you guys. You can't just run around the world, you know, being a missionary over here and doing that. You've got to be concerned about your wife. If you marry a gal, then she becomes a very, very important priority, and so on. Now, I wanted to get through verse 12 because that's where the passage ends, okay? But let's focus once again on verse 9 for the remainder of our time this morning. With verse 9, Jesus is now corrected the faulty teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage that was being disseminated by the scribes and Pharisees, giving to, giving to us God's righteous command regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But as far as I'm concerned, the whole point of the passage, listen, hinges on how Jesus wanted this applied into their lives and ours. Now, it's a pretty strong definitive statement, right? You marry somebody, you divorce them for unbiblical reasons and marry somebody else, you commit adultery, and the person that marries that person commits adultery. That's pretty strong, isn't it? We read that and go, especially if you've been uh, married, divorced for unbiblical reasons and remarried, there's a lot of condemnation that hits you. Listen, how are we to apply this into our lives? Well, let me tell you how I think we should not apply it. Like some in the church are doing, who apply it this way. They say, and I've heard this teaching, I don't think it's that uh, uncommon anymore. There's a lot of people in the church that claim that this is how Jesus wanted us to apply this teaching in verse 9. That Jesus expects Christians, if they've gotten divorced for unbiblical reasons and are now remarried, he expects them, listen to me now, to divorce their second spouse and return to the first spouse because not to do so means they are living and will continue to live in a state of perpetual adultery. They even go as far as to take it to this extreme. They say, look, even if they're on the third marriage, we'll say, and they've been married to this present gal for 10 years and have four kids. They still have to divorce their current wife and go back to the first wife because God never recognized any of those other marriages because the original marriage ended for unbiblical reasons. Let me just say this. I absolutely reject that interpretation. I absolutely reject that interpretation. I do not believe that's what Jesus is saying for people involved in a situation like this. First of all, as we said last week, God hates divorce. Malachi chapter 2. Not only because it destroys something beautiful he has created, two lives becoming one in marriage. We studied this in detail last week. And not only because it damages two people he loves, by tearing those he has glued together apart, whenever you tear something apart that God has glued, it's going to create hurt and damaged people. Divorce hurts and damages people that God loves. God never said he hates divorced people. He said he hates divorce because it hurts the people he loves. But God also hates divorce because of the way it hurts and damages the children who are always the innocent victims of divorce. Listen to me. Divorce, any divorce, 
for unbiblical reasons is sin, and it does deep damage to everyone involved. So to teach that God doesn't recognize the subsequent marriages of people who got divorced for unbiblical reasons and now wants them to end their new family and try to make up for their former sin is, in my opinion, ridiculous. Listen to me. A further disobedience never makes up for a former disobedience in God's eyes. Let me say that again. A further disobedience never makes up for a former disobedience in God's eyes. So then what was the point of Jesus teaching here in Matthew 19, verse 9, or for that matter, in chapter 5, verses 31 and 2. Same idea. Remember who he is talking to and the culture in which he was talking to. When you guys study your Bibles, context is everything. Everything. Remember, he was speaking to a culture that had dragged marriage, and especially the commitment involved in marriage, well... They had dragged it into the mud by making marriage and divorce, listen, no big deal. It was no longer a lifelong commitment that two people entered into where they vowed to stay by each other's side, good times, bad times, sickness and health for the rest of their lives until death separated them. The Pharisees and scribes were teaching quick and easy divorce because guess what? That's how they wanted to live. With the ability to bail on their spouses if things got rough or if a better deal came along, prettier woman, whatever, and yet, they were feeling as though they were keeping the law and therefore being righteous in God's eyes because after all, they weren't committing adultery, were they? No, they were divorcing their wife and remarrying this new gal that, you know, got their passion stirred. Love at first sight, quote unquote. As I said last week, it got so bad with regard to their view of marriage, the rabbis began to teach because Moses said, if you find some uncleanness in her, you can divorce her. They began to interpret uncleanness to mean if you find another gal who's prettier than your wife and your wife becomes unclean in your eyes, you can divorce her and marry the prettier gal. But you weren't committing adultery, were you? And that's why the Pharisees loved this little loophole, quote-unquote, because it, made, it allowed them to have their flings, but in the process looked very upright and moral. What were they doing? They were misusing the law of God. They were looking at the law as a vehicle to make them righteous when the real purpose of the law, if you've been coming to our Hebrew studies, you know, the real purpose of the law was to point out their and our sins, not to make us righteous. We have studied this as we studied Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. Paul hits this hard that, look, the law is good, 1 Timothy 1.8 the law is good if one uses it lawfully, which means you can use it unlawfully. How do you use the law unlawfully? You use it to make you righteous before God. That's not what it was intended to do. So what was the right way to use the law? Romans 3, verse 20. Paul said, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Look, nobody's going to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. Nobody's going to heaven because you can't keep them perfectly. No flesh is justified in his sight through the deeds of the law, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That was the correct use of the law. Not to make a person righteous, but to show them how far short they have fallen from keeping that law. What would that do? It would drive them to their knees and say, Lord, I can't do it. 
I can't get to heaven by being good. I'm not good enough. I need another way. Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So when Jesus taught here that anyone who has been divorced for reasons other than sexual sin and is now remarried uh, is guilty of adultery, his point was to use the law to bring them into the knowledge of their sin so that they would hopefully repent and receive him as Lord and Savior. He wasn't saying this to tell Christians who have gotten divorced for unbiblical reasons and are now remarried uh, to somebody else, maybe for 20 years, to divorce that person and go back and remarry their first spouse. Guys, let's be honest. Let, you know, Jesus didn't say stupid things. Whenever somebody interprets something Jesus said in a kind of a goofy way, you know one thing, you're interpreting what Jesus said wrongly, okay? Well, you know, the Lord said, turn the other cheek. So that means, you know, if I'm walking, if I come home and some guy's walking out the front door with my big screen TV, I got to say, hold it. Let me get you the, the DVD player too. That's stupid. And the pastors that teach this, I, I know they're trying to, this is their conviction. But get out of your ivory tower a little bit. Come down to the real world. By teaching that, you know what you're doing? You're dropping a WMD, a weapon of mass destruction, right in the middle of a family and blowing it to pieces. Not to mention the devastation that cause, will cause the children. Because some pastor, you know, standing up for what he believes is a, was a righteous interpretation, has told somebody, look, doesn't matter that you've been married for 20 years to this current wife. Got to divorce her. I don't care if there's five kids involved. Go back and remarry the first woman. Give me a break. Give me a break. Guys, let me just say this simply as I know how. You simply can't unscramble an egg. It is what it is. We'd all love to live in an ideal world, wouldn't we? Where nobody blew it, nobody failed, always measured up to the perfect ideal. We don't live there. None of us do. Yes, families are a mess. Yes, marriage and divorce and remarriage is rampant. Does that mean God writes off the human race and doesn't love people? Of course he loves them. Does that mean he won't try to do for them the best he can with, reg with regard to any situation they find themselves in? Oh, no matter what kind of a mess they've made of their lives or their marriages. Yes, he will. I realize that we are living in a time when, yeah, again, marriages and families are a mess. So what do we do? Write off people who, who didn't measure up? Again, you can't unscramble an egg. It is what it is. We need to tell them that God still loves them. Even though they've blown it. Even though they haven't measured up to his ideal standard. God still loves them. And will do his best for them in whatever condition their lives or their families are in. Look, divorce is a serious sin. Especially if you're the guilty party that caused the divorce. Because you got involved with adultery or something like that. Divorce is a serious sin, but listen to me, it is not the unforgivable sin. There is only one unpardonable sin, and that's the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Every other sin can be forgiven. So if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many times you've messed up. There is forgiveness through the blood of Christ. I realize sometimes... In the real world, divorce becomes necessary. In cases of continual abuse or continual adultery, but it should never be the first choice or entered into lightly. Look, God hates divorce and is glorified through forgiveness and restoration. Now, some would be thinking, 
after I've said this, they'd be thinking to themselves, but you said, unbiblical divorce doesn't end the marriage covenant in God's eyes. Doesn't that mean that if they go ahead and remarry, they will then live in a perpetual state of adultery? Yes, until they repent. The problem is not that marriage, excuse me, divorce and remarriage for unbiblical reasons can't be forgiven. Here's the problem. When a person goes out and they, you know, they're married, they go out, have their fling, the marriage falls apart or they divorce their current spouse and marry this other person. What happens oftentimes is they justify it. They excuse it. I've heard people say this. Well, you know, when I got married to my husband, uh, I really didn't pray about that like I should have. I rushed into I married the wrong guy. And God has shown me that. And he has told me it's okay for me to divorce this guy and find the right one. Here's what you say to that voice telling you that. Get behind me, Satan. That's what you say. Here's the problem. It's not that we don't blow it. That God can't forgive us. It's when we sin deliberately and then say, well, it's okay. God told me it's okay. You justify, you excuse. If you do that, you will continue to live in a perpetual state of adultery in the eyes of God. Until you humble yourself, get on your knees, confess that you have sinned against the holy God, that you violated what he had clearly said in his word because of your selfishness and your desire to not work through the problems of your marriage, but dump this person, grab somebody new. Lord, I was selfish. I was disobedient. God, forgive me. I was wrong. And God says, you are forgiven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, at this point, other people would say, well, wait a minute. Repentance. You just said that you need to repent. Repentance means to change. Doesn't that mean that they have to change back to their original marriage partner to be forgiven by God? Actually, the word repentance means to have a change of mind. A change of mind that leads to a change of direction away from sin and, yes, back toward God. But listen to me, that doesn't mean you can always go back and correct your past sins. Many people have committed murder and in prison have found Jesus Christ. Their lives were rebellious. What they did was evil and wrong. Now they've received Christ. God's forgiven them. They have devoted their lives to him now to live a life of obedience, right? But they can't go back and fix the wrong they've done. Does that mean they can't be forgiven because they can't undo that past sin? Of course not. In a situation like this, divorce and remarriage for unbiblical reasons, I don't believe God wants another sin of disobedience or another sin of unbiblical divorce to undo a prior sin of unbiblical divorce. Two wrongs don't make a right. Repentance and confession are necessary for God's forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 tells us. But trying to make up for the past sins is not required to be forgiven. Now, listen to me. If you, if you do something wrong to somebody and you can make it right, you do it. If you rip a friend off or somebody else has loaned you money, we'll say. You decided, you know, you're not going to pay him back. And you get saved. Pay him back. Make restitution. But in the case of unbiblical divorce and remarriage, we can't do that. We can't always undo what we have done. And to try to do so will only damage and destroy more lives in the process. If you apply this to marriage, 
divorce and remarriage. Remember that all forgiveness is ultimately based on what Jesus did, not on my trying to make restitution for my, for my past wrongs. Look, we're all sinners saved by grace. And as such, we often fail to live up to God's perfect standards. And when we fail, and we will fail, if we repent, confess our sin, and ask for forgiveness, he is faithful and just to, as I said, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what our response now should be to God? It should be one of gratitude, love, and a fervent desire to obey him even more from this time forward. Jesus didn't condemn the woman caught in the act of adultery. The sin was already committed. You can't undo the act of adultery. He forgave her right there, though, and said, go and sin no more. That's how you handle this. Because God never intended our failings. He, first of all, he knew us. Before he ever made us, he knew who we would be and how many times we would blow it. And he still called us to be his kids, didn't he? He knew we were going to fail. You can't surprise God. You can't disappoint God. Think about disappoint. It comes from the word appoint, which means God appointed you up here. He thought highly of you, maybe. But you disappointed him. You came down lower than his expectation. You shocked him. That you didn't measure up. Oh, you really disappointed me. I really thought more of you than that. You'll never hear God say that. God knows our frames that we are but dust. God knew every sin we were ever going to commit before he ever made us. He knew we were going to fail. Failing is part of the growing process, by the way. God can forgive sin. What he will not forgive is justification of that sin, excusing of that sin, blaming somebody else for your sin. You will live in a continual state of sin and unforgiveness until you humble yourself. And say, God, I'm wrong. It's not this person that, I did it. I'm wrong. I confess this sin to you. Now God forgives. And says, now, what you need to do is draw closer to me. I will fill you with my spirit more. I will give you the grace to live for me more than you have. To obey what I've said. Learn from your failings. We fail because we put too much emphasis on ourselves and the strength of our own flesh. God doesn't want that. He wants to use our failings to bring us closer to him. That we rely on his strength for everything we need in the Christian life. I'm just so happy there is forgiveness when we fail. I mean, divorce is failing. But we all fail. It's not the unforgivable sin. So let's take that to heart. Jesus Christ never said anything that was stupid. And when people apply this to and say, well, here's what he meant. You know, you're married to this second person, you know, for 20 years and got five kids, so you need to divorce him and go back and marry the first person. Are you kidding me? That's stupid. Jesus never says anything stupid. Context is very important. I'm just thankful that he is uh, very gracious to sinners like us. May God give us grace to understand his great love. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We know, Lord, that we don't measure up.
we often fall short of your ideal, your perfect standard. And when we do, Lord, there is forgiveness. If we confess our sin, take responsibility for it, repent of it, Lord, you are gracious and good. You will forgive us our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and say to us now, today is a new beginning. The past is done. You've confessed that sin. I have drowned it in the sea of forgetfulness and will remember it no more. Now, let's go forward from here and you keep drawing closer to me and I'll give you grace to do what I've commanded you to do. Thank you, Lord. You're so good. And Father, we do have marriages in this church that are in trouble. Father, strengthen them. Break husbands and wives of pride, unforgiveness, bitterness, anger. Lord, fill them with your love for each other. Father, heal these marriages. You want reconciliation. Lord, we just give them to you. And we just thank you, Lord. We, we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.